Hey, it's Radio Mysterioso. What I didn't tell Dr. Raiden is we ha- we do pre-show banter. Can you hear me okay? Oh, there we go. That sounds a little better. Good. So uh, thanks for getting uh, make- making room in the schedule. It's probably hundreds of interviews going. That's all you're doing all day and night for like a week or two is interviews, right? No, I try to only do one per day, but I've been doing a lot. Okay. <laughs> it's going to get worse, but I think you have a lot better idea of how to control that. No more than five per week. <laughs> Yeah, you don't get burned out that way. Uh, let me do the uh, intro here. Hmm, which intro should I use for this one? Do you ever listen to the show every once in a while? Occasionally, yes. Oh, okay. That's good to hear. Let's mm-hmm. see. And you know there's different intros to the show. How about the, I think for Dean Raiden, we have the anti-ETH intro. <laughs> here we go. Okay. <laughs> now, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We need to go through a turning point in the study of, of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know, aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that, the, um, that, this, that this phenomenon is... Um, comes from some sort of domain of pure information. And the fact that they can interact with us at all suggests that, uh, that we inhabit a domain that's also pure information. Are we uh, go conditioned here? Yes. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso?
Well, let's not have any of the uh, our valuable time taken up with more of the intro here. Uh, you still there, Dr. Aiden? I was just thinking that uh, I, I would like to just listen to that for about an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of the old days when we'd actually listen to uh, radio shows. Which which required a lot more imagination than watching it on TV. Yeah, well, that's just lifted directly off of uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space because I thought it fit perfectly for my show. Also, as I've said before, I think what I do here is a, uh, maintain an atmosphere of studied incompetence. So I'm just going to kind of keep that up. <laughs> Good. For the one person listening to the show that doesn't know who Dean Radin is, I will read your medium-sized intro. I think on your site you have a short intro, a medium-sized intro, and a long intro. Yes. Uh, I like the medium one the best. Um, This is Dean Radin, Ph.D., is chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and associated distinguished professor of integral and transpersonal psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He occasionally gives lectures in the Department of Psychology at Sonoma State University and has served on doctoral dissertation committees at Saybrook University and at the CIIS, Integral Studies. His original career track as a concert violinist shifted into science after earning a BSEE degree in electrical engineering, magna cum laude with honors in physics from the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, and then an MS in, in electrical engineering and a PhD in psychology from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. For a decade, he worked on advanced telecommunications, R&D, at AT&T Laboratories and at GTE Laboratories. For three decades, he has been engaged in Frontier's research on the nature of consciousness. Before joining the research staff at IONS in 2001, he held appointments at Princeton, University of Edinburgh, uh, University of Nevada, Interval Research Corporation, and SRI International. His newest book is Real Magic. What it does is discusses the history of magic in Western thought and practice and suggests that we can examine issues and concepts formerly considered forbidden by science. It'll be released on April 10th, two days from now. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. I have interviewed you twice before, I think. Once in 1998, I came out to Las Vegas. Yep. And we sat down for, I think, four hours or more. (laughs) That, That would probably have been 97 because by 1998, I was already in Silicon Valley. Oh, okay, okay. So it was 97. I couldn't tell. I was trying to look at the uh, copyrights on the interviews and trying to figure out which year it was. I can't tell anymore. Mm-hmm. What I noticed listening to the uh, interview later when I was transcribing it is that you took great pains to, if I did not get a concept, you would explain it till it sounded like I, cons- I sufficiently understood what you were saying, which I didn't notice when we were, uh, we were doing the interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was either that or uh, oftentimes people will eventually make it seem as though they understand because they just get tired of trying to understand it. So I've begun to learn the difference between actual understanding and just getting tired. Yeah. Well, I was I, the thing was that sitting with you uh, at the restaurant there when we were doing the interview, I if I didn't understand something, I really didn't want to go on because I figured mm-hmm. what was being said was important, at least to me. It, it, uh, I like the interview so much, I actually published the entire transcript in the uh, book that came out later, whereas mm-hmm. the edited one went into the magazine because otherwise it would have taken up the entire issue. Right. <laughs> what I talked about in, the, uh, in your intro there was all of your background in electrical engineering, physics, and psychology. Mm-hmm. So 
is uh, that sounds like a perfect basis to go into parapsychology. Is that why you did it, or did that interest come up after you earned the degrees? No, I, I was interested in parapsychology from uh, being a preteen, probably about 10 or 11 years old, when I discovered that there was such a thing. Uh, prior to that, I just had read uh, many fairy tales and science fiction, and like most people, considered it just entertainment. Uh, but then I was amazed and pleased to find when I was roughly 10 or 11 years old that there was a discipline that actually studied these things in a serious way. So that's what that's what caught my attention. Mm-hmm. Was that your idea when you went into school that you would probably go into that study after you finished all these degrees? Well, as a fantasy perhaps, but <laughs> no, I've always had a much more pragmatic bent so I, I went into electrical engineering mainly because I was interested in making stuff, but, but more because uh, friends of the family were asked uh, for a kid who's interested in making stuff and is, it looks like he's going to end up being a violinist, what would you suggest would be useful to study in, in college? Mm-hmm. And so nobody said to study music. It's, it's way too difficult a living to to actually do music as your career. So if you could do something else, like engineering, then that would be a better choice because it gives you more freedom to decide what you want to do. So I went into electrical engineering because I like making things. Uh, And then when I got ready to go on to my master's degree, uh, I actually did not know what I wanted to do. So I just continued on in electrical engineering And then after the master's degree, I decided I didn't actually want to be an electrical engineer, even though it was kind of fun. But I I couldn't imagine myself doing that as a profession. So I went on into psychology kind of as an accident in that I was interested in artificial intelligence. And there are only two ways of studying that back then, which would have been 1976. Mm -hmm. One way was uh, in the software side. And the other was the hardware side. So in the hardware side, I could have continued in, ele- in electrical engineering and made things like supercomputers. And the other side was working with computer simulations of, of cognition and, and intelligence. And so the one guy at the university at the time who was doing that was in the Department of Educational Psychology. And so I got a, my doctorate under him. Okay. But it was, that, that was the... the, the um, circuitous route to ending up uh, out of engineering and out of music and, and into psychology. And of course, now I take all of those little bits of what I've learned, and I do actually use all of that. You're anticipating all of my questions. The next one was, uh, your avocation as a concert violinist, has that affected your research? I mean, I see a heavily creative bent in most of the research, even though it's very specifically science-oriented. Uh, I, th- I think it did, actually. Uh, not by design, but uh, from age 5 to 25, I was playing the violin between one and four hours a day. Mm. And on the music music stand for most of that 20 years, I had a, a sign that one of my teachers gave me which said, learn to listen. And that was all about intonation because when you play in the violin, there's no frets on the fingerboard. Mm. So you have to do the mechanics of playing, but also listen very carefully to what you're doing to make sure it's on tune. Well, there's a side effect of that. When you have a sign in front of your face for hours a day (laughs) over many years that says, learn to listen, 
the intonation part you get pretty quick. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to be a musician, you get that within a year. Otherwise, you're not going to be a musician. So that that becomes unconscious. And then you start learning to listen to other things in different ways. And and I now, in retrospect, see that I was basically doing a kind of meditation for about 20 years, mm-hmm. from, from quite young to about age 25. And that changes your brain. I mean, it changes what you pay attention to. So I think that that may have made me more open, perhaps, to experiences that others may not have had. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, it's, it's simply a guess as to what the, all of that musical training may have done. Right. I am guessing you still have that sign up somewhere. Only in my head. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good enough, I suppose. Yeah, well, after 20 years, it sticks in your head whether you want it there or not. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, regarding the new book, I was impressed that something I'd been interested in for, I don't know, probably uh, since the late 80s, mid-80s, was a main focus of your book, uh, which was the Western magical tradition. How did you decide that that was going to be the topic of the book, and how is it related to parapsychology? For people that haven't read the book, it's very obvious why you do it in the book. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, the the main reason I got interested in this is I think like a, a lot of people with interests in psychic things, uh, you will eventually read a, a bunch of books having to do with the esoteric traditions, whether you know that it, that's what it is or not. So somebody gets interested in the tarot, uh, tarot cards or astrology uh, or the occult in any form, you're studying the esoteric traditions. Even all the way up to today, people interested in uh, affirmations and books like The Secret. Mm-hmm. That's all part of the same tradition also. So th- so I had known a little bit about it. I just hadn't studied the history very much and hadn't thought about it in relationship to parapsychology because the magical portion of the esoteric traditions is so saturated with superstition and with theater and with ceremony that it's very difficult to imagine what have, what any of that has to do with psychic phenomena. Now, the, of course, the a lot of magical practice involves something like psychic phenomena, but it really seems quite divorced. They seem quite different. So I didn't pay much attention to it for many, many years. Mm-hmm. I, my colleagues never talk about it, with, the, with a couple of exceptions, or a couple of anthropologists interested in parapsychology, and occasionally they talk about it, but then people give them the the evil eye and they stop talking about it. And certainly in the academic world, there are lots of people interested in esoterica of various types, including the history of the esoteric, uh, of magic even. There's Mm -hmm. even, as as I mentioned in the book, there are professional scholarly journals that are devoted to magic. So the topic is there, but what is not talked about is the possibility that these phenomena are real. That is forbidden to be talked about anywhere in the academic world. You can't do that. Now, there are a couple of exceptions, uh, some of whom have been on your show. Yeah. Who, who are the, but they we're talking like a handful of scholars in the academic world who are willing to even entertain the idea that these things are real, at least publicly. Privately is an entirely different story. Yeah. So the taboo prevents people, and including, to my surprise, kind of, is that within parapsychology, maybe 
maybe a third of parapsychologists are academics. And so they, they also know that within their, their own academy, they're not really suppo- supposed to talk about about psi phenomena too much. Mm-hmm. Maybe they can get away with it in the UK now. Uh, but in everywhere else in the world, you, you don't talk about this sort of publicly, and you certainly don't talk about magic as being real. Yeah. That's, that's, that's like a double taboo. Do you think it's worse that, in the... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Is it, is it worse outside the, outside the UK? Well, yeah, that, I was wondering, one, what is it about the UK? And two, do you think this taboo is worse in academia rather than in research science? It is uh, somewhat acceptable in the UK, uh, partially because, actually largely because of the University of Edinburgh, which uh, after about 20 years of um, the first holder of the Kessler chair at the University of Edinburgh. Oh, yeah. So we now are around three generations past the formation of that chair, and and it graduated roughly 75 PhDs whose interest was in parapsychology. Mm -hmm. So the UK not being that big a country, there's something like a dozen universities now where there's someone who has went through that program. So you have senior professors who have an interest in parapsychology, and it simply makes it safer for people to, uh, yeah. to talk about this, at least within the psychological domain. Mm-hmm. That is, that's completely unique within the world, though. You don't find it anywhere else in the world. And so uh, is it, is it a, a super taboo in England? Uh, no. And for a secondary reason in that in the English academic system, it is okay to be perceived as eccentric. Ah, yes, <laughs> that makes sense. Whereas... That is not okay in the United States. Mm-hmm. Eccentricity will get you fired. So, okay, so I'm going to go back to the, you, you asked the difference about academic yeah. science and professional science. Yeah, and the taboos. Yeah, most scientists at, at some point in their career, of course, were academics. That's how they got right. their doctorates and whatever they're doing. So they follow the same track. Uh, if they're if they happen to be working in industry, which is the main secondary place they would end up working, they w- are still pretty much academic scientists, w- whether they're in the academy or not. Yeah. So, yeah, within the United States, the taboos are quite strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that there are a lot who are interested in these topics, but they always swear me to secrecy so that I don't out them. So why did I write a book on magic then? Yeah, and the the answer is that uh, in some respects the the debate of existence of psychic phenomena is is so old for me now that if people are persistent talking about it. I just say, well, read these books that I've written, and look at my website that has this material. And if you want to talk about it, I will. But otherwise, it's simply a waste of time. So, but it. There's a secondary question that comes up, and the secondary question is, well, okay, let's assume that this stuff is real, but how do you explain it? Mm-hmm. And so I became more and more interested in that very question. How can we explain, using the, the, the worldview of science as it is today, these phenomena? And I have colleagues who have been working on this for many years, and I've certainly thought of it in those terms – and when we do use the, the scientific worldview, we're stuck with concepts mainly from physics of forces and fields and particles and all of that stuff. And some of the weirdness of quantum mechanics, 
but nevertheless it's a kind of constrained view of our sense of reality from a from a physics perspective and it's not working too well i mean people have been banging away at this for quite a while and it's still possible that somebody will come up with some way of thinking about this and in fact i wrote the entire book called entangled minds which is exploring the quantum possibilities here. But I think I, I decided after a while that when, when you are faced with a set of anomalies for over a century that are not resolving very easily, for one thing, it gives fuel to skeptics who are saying, well, there's, there's been smoke forever, but there's no fire. So, there must, there, so maybe there is no fire at all. It's, it's all somehow a mistake. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what you would expect if you're dealing with a paradigm that simply cannot accommodate the nature of the of the, uh, of the data. And so we know from the sociology of science that if you have a paradigm that is constantly seeing something as an anomaly, then the paradigm is simply wrong. And so you're going to have two things that will happen. One is that the paradigm reaches a, a crisis point and it simply shatters and there's something new that comes along that replaces it. Or more likely that the, it comes to a crisis point and it expands. It simply becomes more comprehensive. Mm-hmm. So it keeps, keeps the stuff that worked, but it now has a whole new set of underlying assumptions that make, that make the anomalies go away. They suddenly are seen as perfectly fine. So the, the paradigm case here is uh, that when, uh, the, when Neptune was first viewed, uh, it, it was thought to be a planet, but the the orbit of the planet was really weird. It, it kept showing anomalies that didn't fit with Newton's laws of gravitation. And so this remained an anomaly uh, until somebody realized that if there was another planet nearby, that it would cause for this strange wobble in, in Neptune's orbit. And so they predicted that if you look at this particular place and this particular time, that you'll see some other planet out there. And he was correct. The astronomer had made a prediction based on Newton's laws being correct, and they discovered another planet. And I forget now whether it was Pluto or Uranus, but it was one of the other planets that, in fact, was causing this wobble. So that's a case where the old paradigm continued to work. Right. The second astronomical case, though, was the orbit of Mercury. So Mercury was also had a weird thing with its uh, orbit and wasn't matching our observations. And they tried to predict other planets in the same way that they did with Neptune, and it didn't work. We never found the, the missing planet. And what, what resolved that anomaly was Einstein's theory of relativity, which predicted that light would bend around the sun. And that's what caused the apparent uh, strangeness in Mercury's orbit. And in that case, you can see how the paradigm had to change. It had to accommodate this idea now that gravity could bend, could bend light. So it's not that we threw away Newton's laws, but we had to expand our notion of what gravity is and how time-space fits and all that. Right. So I, I was thinking along these lines and decided to look for clues that would tell us the equivalent of the theory of relativity. Like, what, how do we expand out of the current scientific worldview to make it big enough to be able to start accommodating all of the anomalies associated with psychic and other consciousness effects? And so the esoteric tradition is 
somewhere between 10 and 50,000 years old, if you go all the way back to shamanism. And I decided to look at that in much more detail than I had before with the goal of finding a clue or clues that would tell me the equivalent of the theory of relativity. So that's that's why I ended up writing this book. So that's mm-hmm. essentially what I discovered is what I've writ- wrote the book about, and that's why the subtitle here has a guide to the secret power of the universe, because I think that is the paradigmic change that's necessary in order to actually begin to accommodate these things. Yeah, and I would guess that, uh, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, the secret power of the universe, quote-unquote, is us, is consciousness. It's consciousness, yes. So... When you do this synthesis of all of the esoteric traditions, you find that it basically comes down to one phrase. Consciousness is fundamental. That means that consciousness is some sort of primordial background state that permeates everything. It is not in space-time, at least not in the way that we think of from everyday perspective of space and time. It is before physics. That's what that means. Mm-hmm. You see this repeated again and again from everyone from Pythagoras to Plato to Neoplatonism, Hermeticism, Gnosticism, the Kabbalah, and then in more modern terms, you see it wrapped into the Rosicrucians' ideas and the Freemasons and theosophy and New Thought religion and Christian science and affirmations and everything else. Right. It's the same repeated theme. This theme is completely opposite it's almost com- totally opposite from the scientific worldview. So if you take the scientific worldview in a nutshell as materialism, materialism means that everything is made out of matter, including mind. So the flip side is everything is made out of mind, including matter. So the esoteric tradition is this last one, and the scientific tradition is the first one. Well, they don't mix very easily. And that's one of the reasons that if you go through a scientific training, you're looking at the world through a certain set of blinders. It's it, the, the view of the world is good enough for us to make all kinds of interesting technologies, which give us a sense that we're onto something. But of course, it doesn't, it doesn't explain everything. So what do we do then with this other view of consciousness as fundamental? It sounds like religion. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds like superstition. It sounds like going backwards somehow. <laughs> and yet, as I point out in the book, the idea of everything being made of information, which is part of the intro that you played, uh, this notion is becoming more and more popular, even in science. Yeah. And it comes largely from trying to understand, given everything we know about the material world, what in the world it can explain consciousness. And the answer is we don't know. And people are trying really hard. We see really nice correlations between brain activity and various elements of cognition and even consciousness, or meaning awareness, but it doesn't explain the sense of interiority. It doesn't explain subjectivity. So we, we need something, and more and more scholars and scientists are beginning to recognize that. What they haven't yet recognized is that if science moves in that direction, which I predict it will, then it is, going to, it is going to become parallel with the entire esoteric tradition, in which case the idea of magic as a practice of, the, of what you can do with consciousness will suddenly become front and center. And that's why, uh, that's why this book on magic, 
which is written in a way that would appeal to people who are interested in what they think of as Harry Potter, is actually a book about science. And that's why I got two Nobel, Nobel laureates to uh, endorse it and why the president of the American Statistical Association has endorsed it and on and on and on. They, other scientists who are at the leading edge recognize that this actually is a paradynamic change in the science itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've noticed this uh, recently that some of the barriers are falling down, and I'm not exactly sure why that is. Is that because the old guard is going away, or is that because people are braver about uh, saying what they what they really think? Why do you think that's there's there seems to be a change now? I, I hope it's sustained, but do you think there's a change, and um, why is that? There's definitely a change in terms of how it is acceptable in the academic world now to talk about consciousness mm -hmm. and in a broad range of ways of talking about consciousness. It's still not acceptable to talk about psychic phenomena and certainly not about magic, except you do hear that more and more in the corridors between the formal presentations. Yeah. In addition, I, I'm getting invited to speak at uh, at venues that are higher and higher tier in the academic world. Not so much in the United States, but in other, almost every other country. Right. So the taboo is still quite strong here, but it is becoming less and less uh, rigid in other countries, and in particular Southeast Asia. This is front and center in Southeast Asia because they don't have the same cultural uh, taboos that we have. And also, I guess there's a worry... Well, you, you cited the... Uh studies of remote viewing and how the government in the 1970s and 80s was worried that other countries would be studying this because they didn't have those strictures. And do you know if anybody under cover of um, secrecy in these other countries has developed any of what you talk about in your book to the point where it can be practically used? Well, we know that remote viewing is being practically used even in this country, not necessarily in the government circles, but by lots and lots of people now mm -hmm. who have taken remote viewing training. So if it's that popular in the U.S., you can imagine what people in other countries are doing. I don't, I don't know if there are, in fact, programs, government or otherwise programs in other countries, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Well, you, you we're talking about magic uh, as a subject of your book, but how long ago were you considering this as, as uh, part of the equation of what you were studying with uh, in parapsychology? Well, it kind of started when I wrote the, the book Supernormal, which was about one of the esoteric traditions from the East, namely yoga. Mm -hmm. And within the yogic tradition, uh, the idea that a disciplined meditative practice would eventually lead to the cities – which is the yogic form of psychic powers, uh, that's so well understood that it's not, it, it's not even considered a thing mm -hmm. in the academic world. It's like everyone will, so why would you even study that? Everybody knows that. So I, I know in the, in the West that is not as well known, so I wanted to do a comparison between the yogic cities and what we know from laboratory studies to see if, these, if this folklore from the East is correct, and much of it is. So I already had already dipped a toe into the literature, uh, but I hadn't yet done the same thing with the Western traditions. And since the Western tradition, the Western uh, esoteric traditions are very different in some ways, at least they have evolved in a different way than in the East, yeah. uh, they're much more suppressed in the West. 
And unfortunately, it's taken on the connotation of of negativity and demonic and all of the things associated with being heretical, which is a pity. But it, but historically, we understand why that's so. Uh, and that has made it even less well understood, except for the handful of scholars who have been looking at this in great detail. They They know that our culture is permeated with ideas about esoteric concepts, uh, but it is, it's not well known. How, I think it's not well known as, as much as it has been covered or as much as it appears in our own society. Reading through the book, I kind of wondered if you'd actually participated in any magical groups or workings or projects. And if not, do you consider your work, at least your recent work, to be some type of magical operation, if, if you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I no, I haven't worked with Wiccans or sorcerers or anything of that sort. Uh, I know some. I, I know people who are into it, but I've, I'm not the kind of person who's attracted to ceremonies and rituals. Mm-hmm. I, I do much better uh, on my own. Uh, on the other hand, when if I look through the lens of magic or at least magical practice at what I have been doing for the last forty years. It is definitely the same as what sorcerers have been doing forever. Mm-hmm. In other words, you, <laughs> well, the scientific protocols and developing experiments and running them or so on, these are all the same kind of rituals in a slightly different guise than what people doing magic have been doing. So we're, we're not sacrificing chickens in the lab, uh, but we're doing the equivalent in terms of the precision of uh, of what we plan to do and how we actually execute the plan and what we do afterwards, it is it involves the same level of intention, and the and the intention and the attention are both the the key components of any form of ritual. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I've been doing magic in the lab, and if and, and I would not have even said that two years ago before I actually started writing the book, because I knew that it's it's uh, it's like pouring gas on a fire <laughs> it's it's uh, adding controversy upon controversy but i decided that uh, to, be, to say it the way i think it actually is a lot of scientific practice is a ritual it's a ritual with certain ideas and ways and methods that you use in order to reveal the nature of reality that's what magicians have been doing forever so why should we not point out the parallel in particular, since it was magic that took these cosmologies, mostly considered religious cosmologies, over many, many thousands of years, and it was the magicians who tried to make those cosmologies practical. So, uh, uh, just to give one example, alchemy started out of a purely magical um, background and turned magic from supernatural into natural. In other words, you, you could do something like make iron by mixing the right kind of ingredients together or make brass, uh, and that no longer required the idea that a god would intervene. So you, it was no longer supernatural. It was still considered magic because no one knew exactly why it worked, but, but it, alchemy created a form of natural magic that was very practical. And by the same token, a lot of science mostly empirical, but some theoretical as well, is trying to figure out the best model that we have of reality and then doing something with it. So 
what a magician did and what scientists do now is not really that different. No, it's just it seems like the um, the language and the culture is what makes the difference, but they have the same goals apparently. And different worldviews. Yeah. So it's yeah. the worldview that has changed dramatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I still think, though, that there's uh, a certain kind of scientist who relies very heavily on intuition when they're taking a next step into a domain where, where there are no rules. You don't know what the rules are yet. That's probably closer to what an original sorcerer would have been like. They're using rules. They may or may not understand the rules. You find sorcerers today who will follow a grimoire to the letter because they think that that's the important thing. Uh, maybe for them it is, but I don't, I'm not sure I agree. I think that the, the reason why a grimoire would be followed exactly, even to the point of people pronouncing things in languages they don't understand, <laughs> is because they don't know what else to do. Well, being a scientist, I want to know well, why are they saying these words in ancient Aramaic or whatever they happen to be? What, is that really important or is it the intention of the practitioner that's important? Given what we know from parapsychology, I'm, I'm much more think I think it's much more likely that it's all about intention and the right state of consciousness than it is about specific words that are being said. But the nice thing is it's a testable hypothesis. We can get get a grimoire, say things in the proper way, and then say things in English with the best English translation that we can get, and see if the words actually do matter, or, or the if you're using an ancient word or a modern word. And this is a little bit similar to what has happened in meditation research, where it used to be thought that the mantra had to be Sanskrit, mm-hmm. and it had to be the same mantra that people have been saying for thousands of years. Uh, whereas Herb Benson at Harvard said, actually, no, you could just just say the word one, or or just just concentrate on your breath without any word at all, and the results can end up being almost exactly the same. So maybe the a lot of magical practice, and for that matter, a lot of scientific practice might actually be superstition. <laughs> Moving towards the same goal um, with different, uh, I think the most enlightened thing would be whatever works for you, meaning if something feels like it's working right or you get a good uh, result out of it, out of it, um, why do you have to follow any instructions? Well, for magic, yes. For, for science, yes, the, the yeah. goal in an experiment is to actually figure out how something works. And, and in which case, that's why there's so many different variations that you would do as a scientific test. Mm-hmm. And as Alistair Crowley had proposed and many others, that magic should actually be done the same way. It should be an experimental process. Try yep. many, many things, record everything, uh, share it with your friends. It becomes basically a kind of subjective science. Mm-hmm. And I suspect then that if... If my prediction is correct that at some point science has to expand to accommodate all this, then our epistemology has to change accordingly. That will make some kind of internal practice of the scientists more and more important to to track. And so it's not clear to me yet how we're going to do that Mm -hmm. or even how people will be trained to do that. But something like that will probably need to happen uh, for us to take the next paradigm into the next century. Yeah. If the stuff you discuss in the book does work or becomes practical in some way, 
What do you think that would be like, opening the floodgates to these kinds of possibilities? I, what, what I mean is, is there a taboo there for a reason or or is um, because there's some way we all know that it's it's not good for us, or is it just old people who are set in their ways and won't consider new ideas? That's a really important question, and I, I don't have a very good answer to that yet. But it's the same kind of question that if somebody had asked um, Marie Curie when she was messing around with radium before realizing that it was going to kill her uh, – how how do you think uh, our understanding of this radioactive stuff is going to change the future? She would have no idea. And it wasn't until it was recognized that you can create fission out mm-hmm. of these materials and make uh, super explosive bombs that the consequences became clearer. But by the same token, you can say, well, for people who have developed genetic engineering, uh, is that a good thing or not? Well, yeah, it has some good elements to it, but it also can create horrific viruses, which turn us into a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> so every new advancement in knowledge, whether it comes from science or somewhere else, uh, can be used for good or bad. Uh, humanity does not have a very good track record on on the bad side. We, we seem to immediately use things or, or imagine how things can be exploited in a bad way. So it's conceivable that if we really got a, a good handle on on magic, uh, whether you think of that as, as magical ceremony or just an enhanced version of psychic ability, uh, will it be exploited? Almost certainly. Uh, will that be bad for the future of civilization? Could very well be bad. Uh, does it also have positive sides? Yeah, there's lots of positive sides too. And and so I, I was thinking about this recently because somebody said uh, they they hope that the kind of work that I'm, I'm working on now, not just me, but all of my colleagues working on these topics, they hope it won't be used for bad things. With the implication of, are you paying attention to the possibility that it might be used for bad things? And the answer is yes. I think about the ethics of of, of major discoveries in these domains but I don't actually know what to do about it <laughs> because the only alternative is you stop doing it and you prevent anyone else from doing it. And yeah. I don't, that's not, doesn't seem to be viable for me. So, and unfortunately puts us on a space race and, and I don't know how to get off the space race. Well, it, that's not how knowledge advances. Knowledge advances by doing things that have risks, I guess. Otherwise nothing would ever advance. Yes, I say that. And then I think, uh, holy smoke, because if if you really do crack this, then you're dealing with a new kind of fire, mm-hmm. which is way more powerful than, than atomic. So I, I think it, on, on, the, on the whole, maybe it's necessary for evolutionary reasons that we eventually discover that, yeah, everything is ultimately made out of consciousness in some way. And maybe it's on the day where we finally all accept that, that our space brothers show up, <laughs> right? I mean, like they're waiting for us to tell them, to send them the telepathic signal, not the stupid radio signals. <laughs> and, and that's the, the, the uh, signal that all intelligent species in the universe wait for to say, okay, now they've woken up. And before that, don't bother with them because they're primitive. Yeah, and that the fact that you can get to that uh, point and not destroy yourself is another, I guess, would be another point in uh, joining whatever uh, 
I hate to say galactic federation, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, maybe one in a million species will make it to to that point without destroying themselves. And if if you just if you step back and look at it from a cosmic perspective, that actually would be a kind of good threshold to decide, well, okay, they have become mature enough, we can now reveal ourselves because before that they would they're they're just like uh, angry uncontrollable children and why should we deal with them? Yeah, it's funny that uh, you mentioned that. It's uh, for a while now. I've been thinking that none of this is something where th- something comes in ships from other places, but it's more like um, some kind of manipulation of psychic communication or of um, physics that we don't know about, or maybe more importantly, information, which I wanted to get to with you here at some point during the interview. Right. So if we live in an informational construct and our, our brains and bodies are making virtual realities out of whatever it is going on out there, then it's conceivable that our entire understanding of astronomy is actually not completely correct. <laughs> so we could be in kind of a, a, a matrix, a simulation of, of sorts. I mean, we, we kind of are already, given that we know that our, our brains are constructing what we see. So it's a pretty high-resolution construction, uh, but it's easy to show that it's a construction through visual illusions and other methods. Uh, the more we learn about how the brain operates, the more we realize that it is an informational processor, but it's only giving us a very tiny trickle. I mean, consciously, we get a very tiny trickle of what's actually out there. So given that we we now think that with dark matter and dark energy that we're kind of missing the vast majority of the universe anyway, mm-hmm. if, if we had the right kind of way of perceiving, then you can look out on the heavens and see that it's just jammed with things, entities, people, whatever. But we, we don't know how to see it at this point. So I have friends who are mediums and other friends who are channelers, and they say, yeah, yeah I mean, there's stuff around constantly everywhere. And, but we're not, we're not shaped by evolution to see it, except for those people who are kind of mutants, like the mediums and the channelers, who somehow are naturally able to see it. But everyone doesn't, I mean, from a mainstream perspective, those people are tossed off into the psychiatric bins because they're seeing what... The, what is what is not currently acceptable to see. So I don't know whether the scenario I just said is correct or not, but I can imagine I can easily imagine that as being one of the outcomes of that's necessary that you have a major paradynamic change in terms of our understanding of who and what we are, and then suddenly all of that becomes revealed. Mm-hmm. You pointed out in the book that there are two sides of, I guess, the human experience. And one is the interior and what you're talking about with psychics and mediums. And that part has is associated with our, with our subconscious and kind of sits there and sleeps um, unless we need it. And then there's mm-hmm. the other part that's concerned with our physical survival and that we get enough to eat and we reproduce and all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but that... The part that uh, the the psychic sense, the uh, whatever this this subconscious sense, it's really hard to get at because we only use it when we need it, and not when you can pull it into a lab and you know have somebody. But but you can do that. It's just that it's not it's not obvious to most people only anecdotally. 
Well, and this is why in both meditation and in magical practice that the, the goal of the practice is to dive deeper into your consciousness, uh, to essentially to expand how much you can be aware of. So we're normally aware of only a very tip-top surface level, which are things that are coming through your ordinary senses. But with sufficient practice, either meditation or some method of going into the, the state that a magician would say is gnosis, to get down to that state, your, uh, your awareness has expanded. And it expands downward, of course, as a metaphor, uh, mm-hmm. because we don't, it doesn't really go in any direction. Right. But it's as though you're, you're diving deep into the ocean, and it's down there where all of the action is in, in this domain. You see that very clearly in the yogic tradition where uh, in order to start learning how to do the cities, the, the powers, you first have to be able to sustain samadhi as long as you wish. Mm-hmm. Well, samadhi means you can consciously go into a mystical state and stay there. Most people never get there. Even with decades of practice, you don't get there. Mm-hmm. So some of it requires a certain degree of training, certain degree of talent, uh, probably the right kind of cultural support, and then you can you at least have the opportunity of going there, whereas some people are simply naturally attuned to it. They may not even meditate, and they can go there. I think those people are pretty rare, which is why we find that the really, really good psychics are quite rare. They're, they're mutations, or they've had experiences that open them up in unusual ways to these kinds of very deep states. Mm-hmm. But that's it is that those states are where uh, you need to be in order to have these these things start showing up. Yeah, in our our, our ninety seven interview, you said there are very few psychic Michael Jordans. <laughs> it's true. Everybody can sink a basket occasionally, but only a few people can do it almost every time. Right. Which uh, which I found that's something I keep repeating to people. The other thing you say about people meditating was you you encapsulated that thought very well in one phrase that that hit home for me and i can't remember who it was from but somebody uh asked a mystic how you know how should you treat others and his answer was what others yeah there are no others yeah (laughs) it was uh ramana maharshi who said that okay another thing we spoke about in um 97 was and i believe you said this was that meaning is a dimension I've said that to people, and intuitively they they love it. But you know, can you explain maybe what you meant by that? I have no idea what I meant by that. <laughs> it, it it sounds really profound somehow, <laughs> uh, and I imagine I might have known what it meant back then. But after all, that was twenty one years ago already. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I I I think today would how I would interpret something like that is to say that. Uh, we are in some ways meaning machines, or we eat meaning. We have to consume meaning. And if you don't, you become very depressed very quickly. Because without meaning, then the entire existence seems completely pointless. Mm -hmm. And so who wants to live in a nihilistic universe? It doesn't feel like it makes any sense at all. In other words, we're we're not like a tree where a tree seems content to just stand there and, and live. Well, some people can do that, but most can't. It, we, we, yeah. need, we need to feel like there's some kind of purpose toward what we're doing. And if you, you don't feel any purpose at all, then 
this this is why people become very depressed. Yeah. So that that suggests that there's some element in simply being alive and self-reflective where we feel that the meaning is abs- is a necessary part of existence. And if it's true that consciousness really is fundamental and part of the sense of meaning that we get may be coming from awareness itself, then perhaps the universe does have a meaning, right? You have, just as consciousness permeates everything, maybe purpose permeates everything too. We may not know what that purpose is, but nevertheless, it raises that possibility, whereas in a, a random materialistic universe, that possibility doesn't even arise. It reminds me of the uh, Alan Watts quote, I think, which is, um, if existence is meaningless, why are we sitting here talking about this? Right. Why does, any, <laughs> why does anyone care? Yep. Yeah. No, why is there even anything if, uh, if, it, if it doesn't mean anything? Well, I mean, you, you could say from a materialistic perspective that it, it just is. There's just matter and energy. It, it appears in certain patterns. Mm, yeah. uh, some of the patterns look like a, a, a latte from Starbucks. And... <laughs> Others are gas bags in the universe, but none of it has any inherent meaning to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another place in the book, you said that based on your research and the research of others, that we have the ability to warp space and time through directed intention. Can you explain that and how, how uh, how that theory works? Well, that's kind of an inference based on what we see in laboratory studies. Uh, I think the first time I may mention that in the book is I was talking about a synchronicity that happened, uh, which comes right after I was describing what a sigil is, Mm -hmm. one of the magical practices. And so I describe what a sigil is, and then I'd say, well, does this work? And my response in the book is, yeah, I think it actually does work. So that led to the description of this strange set of synchronicities that I had which suggested that very strong acts of intention will warp space-time in in such a way as to imagine that when that events in space and time follow their own path, but if space and time are warped a little bit, then they will start changing a new path. So you could th- either think of it as a metaphor of gravitational. Uh, warping or as probabilistic changes to the direction that things are taking. Oh, yeah, so, you had that experiment in there with the uh, changing the, uh, the, the curve ball. Yeah. So, and that, I'll, I'll, I'll return to that in a minute because okay. I rewrote that thing probably 10 times trying to make <laughs> it simple enough to actually kind of get it. Uh, so, the, so, okay, so sigil is you, you make a symbol. Uh, which represents something that you intend to get. You, you have a desire, you make a sigil. Right. In, in the simplest case, it's it's a little sketch or a drawing, and I describe how to do that. So I asked uh, myself in the book, does this work? And I said, yes, and here's the synchronicity. Oh, do, do you think I should talk about that synchronicity? Because that did lead to this idea of warping space-time. Yes, please. Okay. So this was... Uh, was that the early, office thing? Yeah. 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 So it was in early 2000. Uh, we were setting up a nonprofit in Silicon Valley, and it was right at the time when the dot-com explosion was happening. So offices were very expensive. So we went further and further out into uh, the periphery, 
in the suburbs of Silicon Valley and finally found a nice office. So we, we got the office and uh, after being in there for a while, I, I discovered that one of the offices uh, in the same complex, most of them were things like accountants and uh, real estate people and dentists and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But I found on the listing of the board of people in this complex, one was called PsyQuest Inc. PSI Quest Inc. I thought, oh, that's funny because our place is called Boundary Institute. doesn't say anything about psychic stuff, but of course we're doing cyber search. And here we have PsyQuest. So I thought this PSI was personnel services investigations or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that was a, an amusing coincidence. So the next month I, I walked to work at, to the office a different way and I passed uh, to the office right next to us, which I had never gone that way before because I always approached it from the other direction. And I noticed that there was a small sign in the door that said PsyQuest Labs. So now this became more interesting because what does Personnel Services Incorporated have to do with a laboratory? So over the next month or so, I always walked past that and tried to look in through the mini blinds to see if anybody was there. There was never anybody, any, no one ever in there. Finally, one day I see movement. I kind of peek between the blinds. I see there's a guy in the reception area. So I knock on the door. I see somebody coming to the door. The door opens. I'm prepared to say, hello, my name is Dean Radin. So I got up to, <clears throat> hello, my name is. <laughs> By then the man had opened the door and I had my hand out and I thought he had a stroke. Because he he opened the door and his eyes got really big and he looked at me and he kind of croaked, Dean Raider? <laughs> and and I had not even said my name yet. So I was wondering, well, what's going on? I didn't recognize him. I didn't know him from anyone, uh, but he, he must have recognized me. So to make a long story short, he was, uh, he said, uh, I, I, first of all, I said, uh, I'm your neighbor next door. We're, we're doing research. And he said, yeah, cyber search. And I said, well, what do you mean? What are you doing? Uh, he said, I'm doing what you're doing. <laughs> what do you think we're doing? Well, we're doing cyber search. He's doing cyber search as well. So this was startling because at that point, and even today, we're pretty well sure that we know everybody in the world who's doing this either in an academic or an industrial sense. There's very few places in the world that are able to do full-time cyber search. And so we're next door to this guy. And we didn't even know that that's, that's what was going on. So what he, so that's, that's like a second thing. This is like more, more than a coincidence at this point. Now he tells me what he was doing. And <laughs> the reason why he was so shocked when I opened the door is because he had been doing a, a yogic uh, manifestation process, kind of a meditation where you are going th- uh, three-hour segments over the course of 24 hours where you're awake and then you go to dream and you go awake back and forth. When you're dreaming, you evoke a dream to produce something that you wish, to manifest something that you wish. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to manifest me. Yeah. <laughs> he, wa- he literally wanted me to show up and when he told me that, I felt very disoriented, uh, almost like a, there was a warp in space-time. Yeah. Like I felt that that sub, like there were, something happened. So I, I said, well, wh- why would you do that? Well, he was doing that because he wanted me on his board of directors, and he didn't know how to get in touch with me because very few people knew that I was in Silicon Valley, and nobody knew 
certainly not in the public, knew that we were starting a nonprofit and it happened to be in this particular location. So he had no idea. So when I learned that, uh, we were discussing it and I said, well, what, what are you actually doing here? <laughs> so he, he said, well, come and I'll show you the lab. So he, he goes in, in the back room and I follow him and his lab is as a uh, fully equipped shielded room with lots of physiological equipment and other kinds of equipment and a certain leather chair that reclines in a certain way. And then I said, okay, well, now I have to show you what I've been manifesting. So I bring him back to my office, which is on the other side of the wall from where we just were. And I have a whiteboard up on the on my office, and I have been drawing his lab, been drawing the shielded room with the equipment, with the special chair. It's all up on my whiteboard. And so the reason why this all points back to something like a sigil is because I was in the process of literally drawing what I wanted. I was drawing it both figuratively in the sense of uh, pulling it towards me, like drawing it, pulling it, and also drawing it, sketching on the wall. So this, this essentially is what a sigil is about. You draw by making a picture and you draw towards you the thing that you want. Mm-hmm. So the drawing analogy is a little bit like a warping of space-time, like gravity would do. You, your intention becomes so focused that it is, it's warping the nature of reality itself so as to cause things to come into your orbit. And so maybe one of the reasons why this multi-stage synchronicity was so strong is because both of us were doing the same thing at the same time. It drew us together physically before we knew it, uh, and then I wanted what he had, and he wanted me. And that's why you open the door, and suddenly it seems like space and time go into a black hole. So that was that's that, that synchronicity, which is related to this space-time warping business. Yeah, it's funny that you said, because I don't think in the book you said that you got this. No, maybe you did. You said you got this kind of disoriented feeling. Yeah. And I guess yeah, the guy no. did, too, when you showed up at the door. Yeah, no, we both we both were staggered by uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. I mean, literally staggered. That you you get a sense where you feel like the the ground has moved, because it was it was so disorienting to uh, to suddenly have the from my perspective the sense that I thought I had free will, <laughs> but but maybe not so much. And his sense, you could imagine, he had just woken up from a three hour manifestation wishing <laughs> dream. And he opens the door, and he couldn't tell for a couple of minutes if he was still dreaming. That's the reason why he was so disoriented. Because, you I mean, you could imagine if you're really intently focusing on something in a dream, and then you wake up, and then the thing is there, that's got to be freakish. So we were both freaked out a little bit. Yeah, it almost sounds like uh, what people say when they have some sort of weird paranormal experience, that they feel disoriented, maybe a little bit sick, and yeah. that... Maybe that's the, what's the word? Maybe that's a physiological uh, reaction to something like that, to a very strong synchronicity like that happening. Well, some of it is certainly physiological. You you hear when uh, people are involved in um, active shooter situations that they will sometimes afterwards say, this doesn't feel real, Mm -hmm. right? This is like I'm in a movie or something. This can't be actually happening. So some of that is just a psychological reaction right. and the effects of, of lots of adrenaline happening. So some of it would be that. 
it's being presented with something which is not what you expect. Uh, it may be more than that, though. It, it felt what it actually felt like was uh, this wasn't a dangerous situation by any means. So there wasn't a really adrenaline going. It felt more like I have a certain construct, like a crystalline structure in my mind, which tells me the way that the reality is supposed to be. And and that crystalline structure just got seriously tweaked. And it feels very it, it feels very uncomfortable when that's happening because your belief system is pretty is pretty strong. It holds itself together uh, pretty well, and it takes a lot to shatter it. And it does, it takes just as much to tweak it. So I couldn't say that anything was shattered because I've been I've experienced all kinds of strange things, but that one was particularly odd because it felt like this crystalline structure got tweaked a little bit in a direction that had not gone before. And, so, and I noticed that, and we both did, that something odd is happening here. I've been writing something about what perceptions, what, what role perception plays in a paranormal or UFO encounter, and that it is, uh, and people have noticed this before, it shatters a belief system, it shatters what people, th- you know, their, their construct of reality, and that some people can integrate it and some people can't. Right. So one of the stories from the old SRI days was that uh, because the contract monitors in Washington weren't quite sure what to make of these crazy psychics in California who were claiming that they were remotely spying on the Russians. Yeah. So they would send a contract monitor uh, to, to SRI to check out on these remote viewing things. So the folks at SRI, and this is mainly uh, Russell Targ and Hal Putoff, they learned pretty quickly that uh, you don't demonstrate remote viewing to somebody who's coming in as a contract monitor because they're not going to believe it anyway. What you do is you have them do the remote viewing because then they can't deny their own experience. Yeah. So Russell Targ's uh, superpower is that he's able to get somebody, even someone who's very skeptical about this, to do a remote viewing, and generally they do really well. So in one case, they had the, the contract monitor do the remote viewing. He did it really well, and and they could tell that his belief system was shattered. Like, they, this is not supposed to happen, but it happened. So what you don't do is simply let that person go back to Washington the next day. <laughs> because if they do, they will be perceived as a raving lunatic. And they probably will be. Way be. Too enthu- well, they'll, they're going to be way too enthusiastic. Oh, I see like what you mean. Too yeah. enthusiastic about yeah, yeah. the result. Yeah. So you, newly converted. You, yes, you let let them stay, take a couple of days and keep reminding them that the world is exactly the way it was before. All you've learned is that the world is slightly bigger than than you thought, but everything is still very stable and fine, and it allows the person's personality and belief to reintegrate this new thing mm. without actually permanently damaging them. Has anybody's mind ever blown, quote unquote, by doing this? Where they, you know, they 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 just couldn't, or uh, well, did that method usually work? No, it, yeah, it does work. It, oh, okay, it, it it just requires being sensitive to the idea that if you if you begin to shatter somebody's belief system, it's it's traumatic, but you can bring them down slowly, and then and then they're able to reintegrate. I had, and, and actually, okay. and there's two two, two types of reintegration. Hmm. One is that they reintegrate and they're much more open to these phenomena. And the other way is that they completely forget about it and they will deny that it ever took place. 
Ah, I've heard I've heard and seen both actually. Yeah. Uh, with with uh, different people's experiences. I had one guy uh we were working on a on a documentary and he had spoken to various people in the government and and uh, intelligence people and uh, they had told him this alien stuff is real. It it really is. Um mm-hmm. I've seen it. I've seen what goes on and I'm I'm certain that it's real. And we had to sit with him for two days trying to let him, he said, I don't know what to do with this. These are people I don't think are crazy, and they're telling me these crazy things. And we said, we're still sitting here. Everybody's still going to work. You still have to earn a living. We're, we're, we're going out and eating nice food here. So what? nothing's really changed except, like you said, um, the world's a little bit bigger now. Right. You don't have to 100% accept it, but you have to accept that maybe you have to do a little bit more work about what the uh, what the world is like, especially if you remain interested in these subjects. Yeah, it's for some people, it's very, very uncomfortable. So it's, taking the time to settle somebody down is, is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And, right. and by the way, Ethical. you can certainly, you can see immediately how easy it would be to create a cult. Yes. Like if, if somebody had, had uh, mildly good telepathic ability... Uh, you could you could make people pretty easily uh, start seeing you as a god, and if you if you push it and you keep pushing them, you can get as many followers as you want. And there are plenty of examples like this. And of course, the, those people are not gods; they're just somebody who happens to have a sight ability. And if they're they become power hungry over the over the result of it, then then you have trouble. Yeah, and it's happened many times. Yeah. Actually, that reminds me, there's a really nice chapter in there about um, super wizards or people who are really good at this, and you give three examples. And one of them actually kind of fascinated me. Well, they all did. You talked about uh, David Holm, about uh, Ted Phillips, I believe, and uh, Joseph Cupertino. Right. And yeah, the middle, the middle one is Daniel. It's pronounced Hume. It looks like Holm, but it's Hume. Daniel oh, yeah, Hume. Hume. That's right. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, so these so uh, the reason I brought this up is because this is just after a chapter on scientific evidence. It it's it's hard to write about science without making it too dry. So uh, at the end of that chapter I said, well, I'm talking here about things that we know with high confidence, but it's artificial and it's in the laboratory. Are there any real merlins out there? Mm-hmm. I I gave three examples of uh, people who, where there were many, many, many multiple witnesses of amazing things that they did. So in the case of Joseph of Cupertino, he levitated, like his special thing, although he was able to do other things as well. So for m- many years, thousands of people, uh, including royalty and people in the church, had seen him le- levitate for long periods of time. So there's a very good record, especially in the Vatican, which goes into all of the details on this, because he wasn't elevated to become a saint unless he was able to pass the devil's advocate, uh, who was arguing that he clearly wasn't a saint. But the evidence was sufficient to say, okay, we don't know what else to think about this, and he's either demonic or we will say that he's legitimate. And so he was lucky in that they didn't execute him. Uh, the second was the the physical medium Daniel Hume, who uh, was born in 1833, and this was around the time where physical mediumship was becoming a fun parlor game. 
because there was no television at the time <laughs> and there wasn't even an internet. So the physical mediumship is uh, table, table tapping and table tipping, uh, levitation, things like that. Most of the time it was done in complete darkness, which led to it being uh, very easily perpetrated as fraud. And so most people, most people who considered themselves sophisticated or especially stage magicians at the time were regarding that Daniel Hume, like everyone else, was probably faking it. The problem is that he performed for over two decades and no one ever found him committing fraud, even with the most severe skeptics involved in, in the seances and in exhibitions of things which are just mind-boggling, like long-term levitation and clear view of a bunch of people and lifting of very heavy tables, uh, apparently also levitating, lots of things like that. So I go into some detail on, uh, on Hume because the person who wrote, the, I think, the best bibliography of Hume uh, is a uh, well-regarded performing magician who obviously would be quite skeptical about all this stuff. But um, this magician named Peter Lamont, who's at the University of Edinburgh, uh, he concluded that actually no one has any idea what was going on. And even he, as a performing magician, he does not know in this case that if if it was a fraud, it was a, uh, the most spectacular one ever because he was performing for 20 years in front of skeptics and no one ever caught him. Yeah, with all the lights on, etc. Yeah. Uh, and so then the third category, since that was the 1800s, was Ted Owens, who was born Ted Owens, in, I'm sorry, yeah. Yeah, Ted Owens. He was born in 1920 and died in 1987. So he was studied by uh, Jeffrey Mishlove. Um, Ted Owens claimed to do things like uh, draw down lightning bolts and call in UFOs and lots of other things like this. Uh, and there's enough documentation to show that while it, it's not always entirely clear what he was simply making up versus what actually happened and verifiably happened, uh, that was extremely unusual and yet Ted called it in advance. So are there strange people out there with really remarkable abilities? Yes, not just in ancient times, uh, but in still living memory. And from those kinds of people, you can make an estimate that maybe one, maybe one in 100 million people are mutants or X-Men or just have a certain talent or maybe developed it, where there's two things that happens. One is that they can demonstrate to others and that they want to demonstrate to others that they can do this. Uh, the second is that, so you come up with maybe one in a hundred million people or, or one in a billion people even. Yeah. Uh, but these are very unusual because the, not only do they have these abilities, but they are demonstrating them in some way so that people see it a lot. That's how we know about it. Right. But I kind of suspect that there are many others like them who are in a sense more psychologically grounded and don't need to perform for a living to do it, uh, who are probably very successful in whatever else they're doing, uh, but they don't want to be known because they recognize that the moment you are identified of, of having this kind of ability, in today's world, you'd be hounded to death. Yeah, you'd turn into a circus act. Yeah, and you'd never be able to escape it. 
So they simply are, are smart enough to know to blend in with the woodwork and and they are among us and you just never know. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I felt when I met Joe McMonagle the first time. Because uh. I... So I knew that, that there were some really talented psychics working at SRI, and I had never met anybody that I would consider to be a super psychic before. And then I met Joe, and I thought, well, this Joe does not match my image of what I think a psychic is supposed to be until I realized I had no idea what a psychic was supposed to be. You know, all I had were, were images from movies and stuff, and it's nothing like that at all. It's just a guy. So yeah. Yeah, so I, I, that's why I'm, I'm, I don't know for sure, but I kind of suspect that there are those among us who are every bit as good as the best in history, uh, but they're, they're blending in. Yeah, I think you mentioned this in our first interview. You just said there's a lot of secret psychics sitting around. They just don't want to, they don't want to be known. And two, I think you may have also pointed out, uh, maybe Joe pointed this out too when I when I interviewed him, and, and maybe Lynn Buchanan, who I have met a couple of times, who's another totally normal guy, yeah, uh, uh, appearing. Um, that talking about it or involving the ego in it sometimes diminishes it, right? Or that it doesn't necessarily diminish it because you could, after all, become a guru and have lots of followers, and oftentimes that is that has an ego element in it, mm, yeah. Uh, it may be more that the people who recognize that the dangers of the ego involvement uh, have a specific discipline to avoid that because they know it, it can lead to, to danger. I mentioned earlier, and this is a um, this has been an interest of mine for about a year now, and I was very happy you pointed it out in the book, was, um, and we brought this up earlier, was the idea of information being the basis of of reality. When I say information theory, there's I think there's two kinds. There's one that was uh, based on that uh, book by or essay by Claude Shannon in the ni- in 1950s, I think 1958, talking about information transfer uh, through different mediums and what the information loss is. But the more uh, interesting and uh, current one is the idea that information is the basis of reality uh, in the way that. Um, uh, you use that quote from uh, John Archibald Wheeler, which I thought was amazing because I use that exact quote in a lecture I've been delivering mm-hmm. recently about the it from bit idea. Right. Uh, meaning how does, you know, if the, in, if the universe is made up at a very basic level of information and the, uh, apparently not as, a, not as a metaphor, but some sort of information, how does that transform from pure information into uh, what we see, what we see all around us, and all all of our uh, experience, and all of scientific uh, uh, history, and everything. How how does that information transform into reality? One, how do you see that? And two, what are the implications for um, psi research and what you discuss in the book? Right. So that's the that's a chapter on uh, on how do we begin to understand this. Or what does science say about it? Not from an empirical perspective, but from a theoretical perspective. Yeah, it's still giving me a headache trying to understand it, so I keep talking about it. Well, n- nobody knows at this point. But the reason why I, I mention this in the book is because when you you look in, uh, in quantum information theory and people at the, the leading edge of many different disciplines, they're all coming around to this idea that information or mathematics or symbology or linguistics are fundamentally at the core of reality itself. And so one one other way of getting at this comes from the Ayurvedic tradition. So I heard this from John Hagelin 
one time and it made a lot of sense to me. So imagine that uh, you're, you're looking at a picture of reality, but it's, it, the metaphor is a, an iceberg. And so you have the tip of the iceberg poking out of the ocean, but you know that, that nine-tenths of the iceberg is actually below. But we, you're looking at two icebergs, it looks like. But, of course, when you go under the water, you see it's actually part of one gigantic iceberg. It just looks like two separate things above the surface of the ocean. So that's, the, that's where we live most of the time. It's above the surface where we see things that look like separate objects, two, two, two icebergs. The moment you dive deeper into the ocean, you see that it's actually just one part of one thing. And, of course, the metaphor here is that the m moment you begin diving deeper into consciousness, you get a stronger and stronger sense that everything is connected initially and further down that there's really only one thing. There was never any separation at all. So that's, that's kind of like from an experiential metaphor. And so now you move slightly to the right in this picture, mm -hmm. and you talk about physics. So the physics of it is above the surface is Newtonian physics. Below the surface, uh, not too far down, is quantum physics, where you start getting into the physics of this interconnection, things like entanglement. But quantum, quantum mechanics is not the end of physics. It's just where we happen to be right now. And we'll, get, we'll keep getting further and further down. So what limits us from going down? On the consciousness side, it's simply that you, you either need the talent or the practice to be able to maintain awareness as you go down. It's very difficult to do that. Most people are distracted too easily and they, they find it difficult to do. But it's possible. On the physics side, we need larger and larger colliders to do this and more complicated theories. And the physics is also limited by our mathematics. So if we go now to the right side of this illustration that I'm creating, on the right side, at the, above the, the, the surface of the ocean, the ocean of consciousness, by the way, mm -hmm. the, above that is uh, the counting numbers, numbers like one, two, three, four, five, like every finger has a counting number. And then just below that is something more abstract, which we call zero, took a long time before people invented zero. Mm -hmm. And zero allowed us to create more abstract ways of thinking about numbers. And then below that, we, the development of fractions, and then irrational numbers, and then transcendental numbers, and then complex numbers, and then set theory, each time going down, 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 down into a more abstract domain. So the further down you go on the mathematics side, the more abstract and the more powerful in terms of the ability to to model things that you you get so somewhere like quantum mechanics wouldn't exist if we didn't have complex numbers it, you just can't do it uh, quantum field theory wouldn't exist if we didn't have certain forms of set theory so each time we could make a new dive and in, into our physical understanding of reality we need to develop or need to use mathematics which become more and more complex and this is why you get some mathematicians who say that when you get all the way down to the bottom, at least as far as we can imagine it, we're dealing with a form of mathematics that is so abstract that uh, it would make a, normals, a normal person's brain explode to, to try to actually grasp it. It's very, very abstract. It's difficult to, to wrap your head around it at all, mm -hmm. like some forms of set theory already are just most people beyond most people's ability to imagine but that's the domain. 
It's below that domain, actually, which is probably where the magic happens. <laughs> On the physical side, it's down at a level of physical reality, which is no longer physical. It becomes abstract, informational type. And on the consciousness side, it's a form of awareness, which is probably, and this is a guess, of course, it's probably the same as whatever that informational th stuff is, which is probably the same as whatever that abstract mathematical stuff is. It's like they, they all begin to converge and mix these different concepts at these very deep levels of reality. It doesn't take, you don't need to dive too far down before our everyday concepts of space and time are completely gone. Mm -hmm. We're way beyond space-time and matter and objects and separateness and all that. Those are r relatively high in this in this model. Uh, it so it doesn't take too long to get deep enough for people who are mystics to say, well, I know the oneness of everything now. And then you ask them, well, how, how would you explain that? And they say, well, I have no idea how to explain it. I experienced it, but there's no words for it. So maybe what we need are mathematicians who either are long-term meditators or uh, take psychedelics or do something to be able to get down deep enough to express in very abstract language, namely mathematics, uh, 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 ways of understanding what is actually going on down there. So in the Ayurvedic tradition, at the very bottom are, is, is the extreme subtlety of awareness, but it also is incredibly powerful. And, and, and metaphorically, like if you had a tiny bubble of air at a very deep level, by the time it gets approaching the surface, it gets huge, yeah. which, is, which is why a diver can go way down and then they have to just keep expelling air as they come up, otherwise their lungs will explode. So it's that kind of metaphor. My idea right now is uh, Wheeler's idea, which is that our reality, uh, or at least what we see here, um, coming from that way down from that uh, that uh, the base, is what he said a a a series of what did he say? Yes or no answers to a bunch of questions, mm -hmm. um, whether posed by your mind or the instruments we we come up with or whatever, and that becomes what we see. Which kind of begs the question, um, if we made it all up, then where does reality lie anymore? I mean, where, where does this basis lie? And it seems like it only relies in an interaction between us thinking about it, you know, in a very simple way to say it, or that, that's it, just us thinking about it. Yeah, although it's not necessarily us, us meaning humans. So in, in the, uh, the okay. Indian... Approach is, yeah, Brahman equals Atman. Mm -hmm. So the consciousness that you enjoy inside your head, or apparently there, is exactly the same as the universal consciousness. It's made out of the same stuff. It's not separate from that, but it feels separate from that. Maybe because for universal consciousness to manifest in, in an embodied state, it, it is somehow related to the physical structure of the brain itself. So naturally, you would feel as though you are your brain. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's not really that, but that's that's what it would feel like. So, you, in principle, would have the same ability to create the entire universe, just like the universe emerges out of consciousness with a big C. So this is, I think, why magical manifestation works. That you having a particular desire, in a sense, is doing what the universal 
consciousness does in order to emerge stuff out of it. So the universal consciousness is imagined to momentarily having a whim that it wishes to have a playmate or something. And so it creates a physical universe. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's it's less, I mean, you know, we're making up stories here to be able to talk about it at all. But something well, like that happens. that's all we've happens. got. Yeah. So, we have, so now we can say, okay, I'll do the same thing. I have an intention. I wish for the world to respond in a certain way. I wish to manifest that. Well, we have the capacity to do that because we're part of this universal consciousness. But we also have a lot of inertia pushing against us, and we also have our own self-doubt, and we also have self-defeating behavior and lots of other reasons why it usually doesn't work out very well. Mm-hmm. But because of people like uh, St. Joseph and Ted Owens and a few others, apparently, occasionally, there are people who are in much better contact with that, and they could make this major magic happen. And then there are people, perhaps like Joe McMonagall, who is extremely good on the perceptual side. So he may not be able to manifest things as well as simply perceive through the illusion of separateness. Right. Which is also a part of this this consciousness. If things can be manifested out of the ether or whatever, if as apparent, apparently some people have done, how come people can't just start manifesting gold rings and diamonds and things? Yeah. If magic is real... Why can't I use it to solve big, intractable problems such as poverty, disease, and war? Yes. Why can't I use it to make my personal dreams come true every time? And my answer is, you can, sort of. Yeah. (laughs) And the sort of is that, as I was saying, that there's an enormous amount of inertia in the way that the the physical universe is. I mean, the, the lawful regularities that we see in physics are real things. Like, I don't think that it's human minds which are sustaining these laws. And maybe some kind of universal mind, or maybe they just go on by their, by their own selves once, once the, the matter and energy are manifested. I mean, after all, if you, you think of, of uh, reality in a hierarchical way, that maybe at the bottom we have awareness, but from that emerges physicality. Physicality is, is more constrained in many ways uh, than consciousness. Uh, it has certain regularities, certain rules in order for it to exist at all, because otherwise it would emerge and disappear instantly. So it has a certain degree of inertia. Then that emerges into biology, which has even more inertia. That emerges into psychology, that has even have more inertia, and so on. So the higher up you go in this hierarchy, the more stable things become. Yeah, you have all these gates. Yeah, which is probably a good thing, because otherwise... You, I mean, we, we don't notice, for example, that our eyes are constantly flipping all over the place. If, if, we, if, our, if we were seeing what our eyes are pointing back at, into our brain, we wouldn't be able to do anything. So we have huge amounts of information coming in willy-nilly into, just through our eyes, and the brain is creating a stable image. Mm-hmm. Much more stable than what we're actually seeing. So maybe something like that is going on at every level until you get down all the way to consciousness where things are much more flexible. So that would suggest that, yes, I can manifest certain things. My intention will cause them to happen. But I have seven or eight hundred, seven or eight billion other people on the planet doing the same thing. (laughs) And and so it's going to, it's all going to get mushed together at the physical level. We have physical regularities with inertia and they don't want to change very much. Uh, there's lots and lots of reasons you can come up with to show why 
uh, you're the shibboleth of uh, you create your own reality is probably true, but also much, much weaker in general than the the usual way that is portrayed in, in books and in movies. It's a real thing. It's just not so easy to make it happen. One of the things you said was when you were talking about, and, and I was going to ask you when we were talking about uh, opening the floodgates, when if, if, if and when all this magical stuff becomes possible, you uh, said, and I think you've said this before, that reality, our reality, seems to be self self-repairing in mm-hmm. some ways. Right, and this is related to uh, if you if you want something to happen, uh, you, it might be something that you're very interested in, but maybe you're surrounded by people who are saying, "Oh no, you don't," or maybe you're self-defeating. So the self-defeating part is something that we don't normally walk around saying. Um, there's there's a part of me that I'm not aware of that is making me do things I don't that's not good for me. Mm-hmm. So and we know that that's true because of smoking and drinking and all the rest. So we don't always do what is in our best our own best interest. In fact, a case could be made that we only rarely actually <laughs> act in our best interest, especially as a population. Yeah. So it, there's. There are many reasons uh, that would push against our abilities to actually do this this kind of magic. And I think it's not a coincidence that when you look at the sorcery literature, that sorcery, in order to be effective, almost always has to be done in secret. You You don't want other people to consciously know what you're up to because it'll interfere with the nature of the magic. Mm-hmm. So... You have that, and you may also have elements of reality itself, like like um, consciousness with a big C that is noticing that some of the little Cs down there on Earth are, are acting in certain bad ways, and the big C will say, just stop that. We're not going to do it. <laughs> the other way could be that fabric of reality might be quite manipulable and flexible, but it doesn't like to change very much. In order to create a stable reality... If I intend to keep pushing and warping space-time in a certain way, it'll let me do that, but then it'll repair itself. It'll bounce back. Mm -hmm. And so one of the fears that that you see again and again throughout history is that if somebody is too lucky, everyone else becomes very suspicious about them. And it's not only because of jealousy, but they are now fearful that something bad is going to happen to balance out that luck. Yeah. So this is one of the reasons why magic has probably gained a bad name, because people would fear the magic. They fear the consequences of even an apparently beneficial effect could have a negative outcome. Yeah, when you're speaking about that, it sounds like um, I, I had the image in my head of a uh, of trying to break the sound barrier and what mm-hmm. types of things they had to do to get the aircraft to do, be able to do that. So, so that it was only pushing a tiny little bit of air in front of it before it hit the sound barrier instead of lots of it. Right. And the design had to be changed so that they could actually do that at some point and the power behind it and all that. And it sounds like there's a metaphor here with um, that would work, something that would work. Um, yeah. And I guess we just, we, we have, uh, your other metaphor with me was trying to hit a fly with a sledgehammer and that seems right. kind of like what we're doing here, trying to break through this um, uh, Rubicon of, what can magic do and what it, what can it not do? Yeah. And, it, and the other metaphor you can think of is if uh, reality is flexible, 
or elastic, you can push elastics pretty far. Mm-hmm. At some point, they're either going to break, which is bad news, <laughs> or it's or it will either snap back or it'll want to push back. You know, if you if you suddenly let it go, it'll snap back. If you let it go slowly, it will push back to prevent itself from being bent too much. Right. Uh, if we take Einstein's theory of relativity not as a metaphor, but as a literal warping of space-time, which seems to be a, a, a nice geometrical way of thinking about it, well, there we don't see too many snapbacks, right? So you, you can create a, a pretty stable orbit of a planet around another planet because of the distortion of space-time, which can last for quite a long time, except maybe not in cosmic time, right? right. In, cosmic, in cosmic time... The, the, our solar system has been here in a flash and will disappear in a flash. Mm-hmm. So maybe it, there, there are rebounds, but they just occur at different timescales. And we find it difficult to imagine that we're in the middle of a rebound right now. We just don't, we don't see it very well. Yeah, because of the timescale, yeah. Right. Well, um, do you think a, a, a lot of these issues that uh, I'm, I'm interested in, uh, psi research... Um, uh, UFO study, other paranormal pursuits. Do you think they'll ever free themselves of the stigma that they have attached to them by by popular culture? And is your book a part of trying to do that? Well, all of my books have been trying yeah, to do that. That's true. <laughs> uh, I, I've I have different feelings about it, though. That sometimes I I want to reach everyone, and then that that only happens like once a month. <laughs> because most most of the rest of the month, I'm thinking that that most people, most of the time, they're not really interested in in diving deep into cosmology and philosophy of reality and all that. I mean, they have too many other pragmatic concerns, yeah, they just and they want to see a interested. result. Yeah, or they want to watch a movie. Yeah, you know, the rest of it is is nonsense. So, I feel actually quite happy that if if I can reach the one to five percent of the population <laughs> that, is, that is interested in these things and they, they want to know about it and talk about it and so on. And, and in particular, to, to, do, to change or at least challenge the taboo enough within the academic world to, to allow that 1% to 5% of people to study this in a serious way if they wish to. Mm-hmm. Because one of the consequences of pushing this outside of the academic system is that there are plenty of people who are paranormal enthusiasts, and because there's lots of interesting stuff to look at, but it never gets very far because it doesn't have the same level of rigor that you get in the academic system where you, you, have, you have lots of very smart people spending all of their time trying to figure out what's going on. Yes. Now, some topics, like in philosophy, are, not, are never resolved because they're just way too difficult. But I'm pretty sure that there are some subsets within what the the great unwashed paranormal that are both amenable to scientific study like psychic phenomena or uh, through cryptozoology like Bigfoot and, and other other categories that can be studied as long as they didn't have this overlay of being ridiculed and that this this is just a problem and I don't like that problem because it doesn't match my image of the aspirations of science <laughs> so that, so uh, in my own way, as much as I can, I'm trying to poke at that taboo and repeatedly poke it enough to let people know that there are at least some aspects of the taboo that are no longer serving us very well. And whether 
and and as I I don't had mentioned this yet, but when I look around the world at where it is possible to talk about this and at what level of society, uh, I I think it sometimes that it will be that the United States as it currently is will be the last place on earth where you'll be able to bring this in into the mainstream. Uh, it it more likely will appear in uh, in Asia mm-hmm. first. Because, as I said before, it's already culturally acceptable to talk about. Somewhere between India, China, the um, Malaysia, those, those kinds of countries. Uh, whereas in the, the Western academic tradition, with the possible exclusion of, of England and Scotland, uh, it's still very, very difficult to talk about this. Because you're pushing against a status quo. And the status quo tells academics how they need to behave in order to maintain their job. And nobody wants to put their job in jeopardy. So it's, that is, that's very difficult not to crack. You had a quote in there from, I can't remember from whom, about uh, it's very hard to get somebody to believe something that goes against keeping their job. Yeah, it's Mark Twain. Was it Mark Twain, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's hard to get a man to believe something if it, uh, the belief uh, challenge, challenges or is against uh, his job. Mm-hmm. And it's true. Yeah, maybe they personally believe it, but you're not, you'll never act that way. And when it comes to um, it, both government and the academic world and to some extent industry, the people in charge of those institutions, the administrators, they fear embarrassment more than they fear death. <laughs> and so anything, anything that challenges the status quo will create embarrassment. And as we see again and again happening now in the political sphere, that somebody does something that maybe 20 years ago would have been okay, but it's not okay now, they're out. And yeah. they may be out permanently. And so the, this uh, notion of not pushing against what society is currently seeing as acceptable, it has very strong consequences. And, and everybody knows that. And so nobody wants to be the lightning rod for uh, being seen as being soft on, the, on these kinds of topics. And it just maintains the taboo. It's just very strong. So there's a flip side to all of that, which you kind of raised a little bit. Mm. And that is whether or not maybe we're not mature enough as a species, or maybe this stuff shouldn't, should remain in the esoteric domain. Uh, maybe only 1% of people should actually spend any time on this at all. That is a possibility. Uh, when I put on my scientist hat, I don't like that at all because we should be able to study anything. We need to be careful about the ethics of it and how we think the information might be used. But the part of the aspiration in science is that it's always better to know than not to know. So we, we, we need to understand these things better because if we don't, a case can be made that the, the, the state of the world is in its current state because we don't actually understand who and what we are. And if we continue along that path, we will destroy ourselves. Mm-hmm. So we had better figure it out, and we better figure it out fast. So part of the, of the problem underneath it is by not understanding the nature of who and what we are, uh, we're under, working under models that are either completely nihilistic or under relig- religious models that are looking forward to the apocalypse, or many other models which place us in, in a very precarious state where 
it could be in not too long ago you could destroy a country and it wouldn't matter now we can destroy the world and it will matter in fact there are already people that are talking about it's too late in terms of climate control and we're all dead in 10 years yeah so i hope they're not right but if if it turns out that they are right then well some other planet will have to figure this out <laughs> Which is depressing, but we press on. Just like that's a, that's the next thing I was going to ask you. Uh, we got probably fifteen minutes left here. If it's so hard in this country, why are you doing it here? Well, partially because I'm a patriot. I mean, I'm I'm born in in America and have many uh, things to thank for being here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other is that nobody's offered a job anywhere else. <laughs> So I've been offered many opportunities to speak at other places, which I'm always happy to do. Uh, but no one's offering, uh, would you take this position to do such and such? And I'm also at the age now where even if I did get a, uh, an invitation of that type, I'm not sure I would take it. I'm, I mean, I'm at the point now where I would like to uh, be semi-retired. And what that means to me is that uh, I can have time to actually read a book. That would be fun. <laughs> Instead like of bits re- and pieces of them. Well, yeah, I'd like to uh, read a, a book of, uh, of fiction mm-hmm. with no purpose other than because it's fun. I see, yeah. And, and I, I have so much work to do that I don't generally have that kind of time. Or if I, if I did, I, I have to carve it out and something else suffers as a result. So i'm I'm looking to cut back on how much work I've been doing, not to make it worse, and so i I think uh, I'm staying put. Why did you write this book if you wanted to cut back? <laughs> well, one of the reasons why I write a book is because I'm looking for a book that uh, and I can't find it. Ah, yes, yes, exactly. So I was looking for a book that is talking about science and the esoteric traditions, and in particular how some of those ideas of magic have been tested. Right. And and there is no such book. There are bits of books mm-hmm. that talk about it, but not nothing of the sort that I was looking for, so I had to write it. So now I've gotten it out of my head, and so I can go on to do other things. What are you working on right now? Can you talk about it, or is that will that mess up your magical? <laughs> well, I have a bunch of experiments and analyses underway. Uh, one, of, one of them is I'm looking at uh, data from Twitter to see if I can locate, uh, if I can predict where the next lone wolf uh, active shooter Mm. is. So in Twitter analysis, which is, there's lots of people doing it now. Yeah. You can, uh, you get a big batch of Twitter data over a period of time in a given location or lots of locations. And you do a sentiment analysis. So sentiment is a set of words that describe a certain kind of emotional affect. And then you look at all of the text written in the tweets, and you can make a measurement over time uh, of how does the population feel about certain things as reflected in the in the tweets. Yeah. So there's a um, university group that's been doing this every day uh, since Twitter began, and there's a chart you can see online that shows that when uh, Trump was elected president was the lowest sentiment recorded so far. 
Mm. So, it, and this is again, I'm looking at the nature of the emotions expressed in the tweets that that day was the lowest emotional state since 2009 when Twitter began. So, what we're doing is. Oh, so you got a baseline the, there, to, so to speak. Oh, yeah. But I'm looking at, and this is over, that's over a long period of time. We're looking over a short period of time of one week before the Las Vegas shooting to one week afterwards. Mm hmm. Because that event was also one of the, I think, the second lowest um, sentiment. And what you can do then is, you, since I'm interested in pre-sentiment, the right. guess is that maybe people were not feeling quite as good before that unfolded. And we'd be able to tell that by getting the sentiment analysis from the moment of the shooting afterwards and then simply moving backwards in time. So the two things I'm looking for is, can we see that there's a pre-sentiment? before the shooting, and more importantly, can we tell where it is? So we got right. all of the tweets from everywhere in the United States one week before to one week afterwards. And so it's a big data crunch to, to work through it, but that's one of the things I'm working on. Yeah, it is a data crunch. And I guess it would only work for, I guess there's cultural markers and all kinds of markers. I guess it, would, it probably wouldn't work in, you know, in, well, you don't have mass shootings in India. But uh, go ahead. Yeah, you can... What you do with sentiment analysis, it, it is culturally based. Uh, all of the tweets we're looking at are in English, even though not all tweets in America are done in English. Mm -hmm. So it's already cutting out uh, some portion of the of the tweeting. Um, you can also refine the sentiment analysis to match it to the kind of event that you want. Mm. So one of the things I've done is to look at the time that the shooting starts to unfold over the next couple of hours a very large proportion of tweets are about that shooting. Right. Uh, I happened to be in Prague at the time that the shooting happened, and we it was immediately on the news. It was 10 o'clock at night in, in Las Vegas, but it was like 9 o'clock in the morning or something in Prague, and we turned on the TV, and there it was. So it, it gets around the world very quickly, but you can, uh, because it's an active shooter event, you don't want to use just terms that would might uh, reflect something like a depressed mood, but ones that are specifically about that kind of event. Mm -hmm. So I'm in the process of tuning the, um, the after-shooter event sentiment to use that to go backwards in time, and then also see when the event occurs, how does that diffuse in, in space-time? Where does it go first? Where do you see it showing up and anywhere in the United States? And then can you use that and vector it backwards? I see. The whole point is that if you get on, online real-time tweets all the time and you have this model in mind, that you're looking for terrorist events or shooter events, can you run all of those all the time? And then if you find indications that look like what we've seen before, like a shooter event, and you can tell where it is, well, then you can go to the FBI or whoever you need to go to to tell them at, at minimum – we're getting some kind of a strange signal, and you may want to increase vigilance. Right. And we, uh, I'm in contact with people who are ready to do that because the problem with lone, lone wolves is that you, no one knows. Even the person themselves may not know yeah. until, until an hour before the thing happens. So mm -hmm. we're, we're taking advantage of the, instead of the wisdom of crowds, the intuition of crowds right. to just see if, if we can pick up something. So yeah. that's one of many projects I'm doing. Oh. Uh, what research besides your own right now excites you the most? 
Well, let's see. So I, I'm now a, a part of a team of seven scientists at the Institute of Nordic Sciences. Um, one of my colleagues is uh, doing mediumship research, where we get mediums into the lab and uh, they're asked to do various kinds of tasks while we're taking between 64 and 128 channel EEG. And the idea is to see if we can tell which regions of the brain are operating in various ways when they're correct and they're incorrect in the various tasks that they're doing. Mm -hmm. we, we previously have done that and we were able to show that, uh, that when a medium is doing mediumistic work, it's very different than simply imagining that they're doing something or remembering. So it's a different brain state that they're in when they're actually involved in mediumship. So we don't know exactly what that is, other than we can discriminate that it's not ordinary making it up. Another experiment is looking at uh, full trance channelers. So these are, are mediums who specialize in allowing some entity to work through them in a full trance mode. So internally, they're stepping out, stepping aside and let something taking over their body and speaking through them. So in that case, we're asking them to go into the channeling mode and out of the channeling mode in five-minute chunks mm. with the idea that, again, we want to measure both their physiology and their brain activity to see can we detect what is happening that's different when they're channeling versus not channeling. There, there have been only a couple of previous studies looking at this kind of, of switching of states. We expect that it'll look a lot like uh, switching among dissociative states or switching among um, um, multiple personalities, mm. where you see these pretty major changes very quickly. Yeah. So we're, we're doing that at this point mainly to, to see if we can verify that in these people. I've narrowed myself down to about 20, 21 questions. We got through most of them. I, of course, I had about 30 more. Uh, <laughs> and maybe we can ask them again when you're not as busy, uh, if that's uh, okay. Sure. And thanks so much. If you listen to the show at all, Dr. Raiden, you know that the guest gets to pick uh, a piece of music to lead out the show. What would you like to hear? Oh, I wish I knew that in advance. Yeah, I cause... should have told you. Well, this is what editing's for. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm going to look at my favorite list here. Yeah. Um, the new book, by the way, if uh, if people didn't hear at the beginning, it's called Real Magic, and that will be released on Tuesday. Um, Tuesday. Yeah, you can pre-order it right now, but it's uh, it's coming out on the tenth. Okay. So here's a. This would probably be appropriate. It's the song called Old Devils by William Whitmore. Let me see if I can find. There it is. Old Devils. Well, William Elliot Whitmore. Yep. All right. We'll play that to uh, as our outro here, and I thank you again so much for your time and your great work, and hope to talk to you again soon here. Good. Thanks for asking me. All right. Thanks. Back then, the old devils are.
Politicians with no fear.